And then the last one is going to be dealing with the devil. All right. Y'all like that one best, don't you? I got a real... All right. We're going to look at living for God tonight. This is part three. Think not your trials strange. Anybody had a trial in 2010 now that it's 2011? Did anybody have a trial in 2010? The rest of you, I want to meet you. You didn't have a trial? Anybody had a real trial so far already in 2011? In a trial right now? Well, if you're not, hang on. You will be. So we're going to look at how it's so easy to say, wow, nobody's going through this like me. And, um, but the trials aren't strange. And God, God is with us in those trials. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. And we pray in Jesus' name that you will speak to us out of your wonderful scriptures. God breathed so that we can be fed tonight. So Lord, tonight, open our understanding and our eyes in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Turn to somebody and say, your trials aren't strange. Hang on. Huh? Taylor. Stand up there real quick, Taylor. He's in here from the service. and Very good. Taylor King. Yeah. You've been hulking up, haven't you? Kind of, okay. We're here to talk about Jesus. But it's good to see you, Taylor. Now let's... Uh, Let's, we're going to read together the Word of God, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. We're covering tonight, and I hope you're reading ahead. If you want to stay with us, read 1 Peter 5. Never without a pen. If you've got a Bible that's too holy to mark in, buy one that's not too holy to mark in. And mark it up. And make notes in it. Uh, so if you want to read ahead, 1 Peter 5. But suffering for being a Christian. Everybody read with me, would you? Good and loud. Let's read the Word of God. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. Anybody in here killed anybody? I want to know. Because Brendan's here to make a quick arrest. No. Now, as we read this, I want to ask you a question. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to Christians. So, obviously, Christians can mess up. Okay? So let's read again. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or what? A busybody. Look, he's got busybody in there with murderers. Busybody in other people's stuff. Yet if anybody suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed for that, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now look what it says. The time has come for judgment to begin at God's house. Judgment begins at God's house. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Not good. Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, 
Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer... Let's read this last one together, can we, everybody? This is good stuff. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. All right, the normal condition of the church in a world that hates Christ and that gave Him a feeding trough in which to be born and a cross on which to die is one of rejection and persecution. If you think the world's going to love you, if you take a strong stand for Jesus, you haven't yet taken a strong stand for Jesus and found out the way they really will do. This world hates Christ, by and large, and Jesus told us why. He said because their deeds are dark, they are living in sin, and they don't like the light shining. So in an elevator that's crowded, you can get in there and say, Buddha! Say, ah, cool. But if you say Jesus, unless it's a cuss word, but you say it out of affection or to witness, and they're hitting the next button to get out of that elevator as quick as they can. Why? Because that, light, that name shines light. The Scriptures shine light. The Gospel shines light. And what does the light do? It exposes the darkness. So Jesus said, this is the judgment. This is why judgment is coming. Because light came into the world, and men love darkness more than light. And they don't come to the light because their deeds are evil. So, the normal condition for a true Christ-exalting church is to be rejected and persecuted. Now, Peter's now addressing the issue of suffering in 1 Peter 4. Either suffering for Christ's sake or suffering for the wrong reasons. Now, his main point is to help us see the sufferings that come for Christ's sake as something that we ought to be able to rejoice in. If you get persecuted, rejected, criticized, slandered, whatever, for Christ's sake, then it ought to be something you rejoice in. We need to learn to give God praise when that happens. Let there be dark. <laughs> what are you doing, Joe? There we go. Don't fool with lights when I'm talking. <laughs> All right. Now, he calls these sufferings, for Christ's sake, fiery trials. That's what they are. Now, this, this word, this phrase, comes from a Greek word meaning to set on fire. Isn't that something? When you suffer for Christ's sake and you get persecuted, the idea is being set on fire. Peter has already told his readers they can expect to be refined in the fire in chapter 1, verse 7. As gold is refined in a furnace, and that fire that refines gold is hot fire that melts gold. Now, all of this, all of this brings us to the Caesars of Rome. Now, let's go back. What was the environment that Peter was teaching in? Why did he write this? What was going on with this early church that he said to them, don't think it's strange concerning being set on fire, the fiery trials that you're enduring. Well, the seizures of Rome brought incredible persecution to the Christians of that day. Nero was the first of ten persecuting Caesars. The final and the worst persecution came under the emperor Diocletian. It was horrible. You ought to someday pick up the Fox's Book of Martyrs or just Google uh, on the internet, you know, martyrdom, first century martyrdom of the, the early church. It was, it was brutal. 
Church historian Andrew Miller gives us the following graphic account of the fiery trial that raged even as Peter wrote. He says, quote, This was the first legal persecution of the Christians. And in some of its features, it stands alone in the annals of human barbarity, what was done to believers. Inventive cruelty sought out new ways of torture to satiate the bloodthirsty Nero, who was a psychopath. The gentle, peaceful, unoffending followers of the Lord Jesus were sewn into the skins of wild beasts, put out there in the Colosseum that was packed like a football game, and they would cheer as the animals, the wild animals, attacked Christians sewn into animal skins, watched and cheered as they were eaten alive by dogs, lions. Others were wrapped in a kind of dress smeared with wax, with pitch, and other combustible matter, with a stake under the chin to keep their chin upright. And they were set on fire when the day closed, that they might serve as lights in the public gardens of popular amusements. And sometimes Nero lent his own gardens for these exhibitions and gave entertainments for the people. And I you got to imagine, stop a minute and just think, because sometimes you and I have a tendency to say, God, why are you letting me go through this? But think if you're one of them. And you're looking out there at a crowd of people cheering as they light you. And consider it entertainment. Or you're in a coliseum full of people. And here comes the wild animals to tear you apart. Think of your prayer. Think of looking up and how your last moments would be before Jesus. Now, I know this is gruesome, but we ought to know the truth. This is a historical fact. Nero took an active part in the games himself, sometimes mingling with the crowd on foot, sometimes viewing the awful spectacle from his chariot. Yet long before the fires were quenched in Nero's garden, the martyrs, had found their home and rest above. Just for the record, right now, there is this side of a genocide happening in the Middle East against Christians. In the West, we still have protection, though we've lost some of our freedom of speech with the hate crime legislation. There are Christians now who have been put in jail in Canada, one here in America, for saying homosexuality was a sin. Put in jail. Just yesterday, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that a cross in California was unconstitutional in a public place. We're not being martyred, but persecution is coming and has increased in the West. But in the Middle East, Christians are being blown up, slaughtered, killed, usually by radical Islamists, and it's increasing. And keeping that in mind, for the record, Nero died by his own hand, committed suicide in utter wretchedness and despair in A.D. 68, one year after the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, the two top church leaders. One year after they were martyred, Paul decapitated, Peter hung upside down on a cross 
this psychopath committed suicide. Now, why does that matter? Well, it's in this environment that Peter wrote, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. So next, Peter tells us that such trials should be a gladdening experience. Now, either he's crazy or he's got a hold of a truth that we need to get a hold of. Is how can you consider this, that a gladdening experience? Well, he said, quote, But rejoice to the extent that you're partaking of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. When? When his glory is revealed. Peter's words were not empty words. He had been in prison himself, threatened with martyrdom, beaten across the back with the same 39 lashes that had been administered to Jesus. Paul got it three times. Yet with bruised and bleeding back, he and the other disciples had left the presence of the Sanhedrin. We're told in the book of Acts they were rejoicing after <clears throat> receiving 39 lashes that shredded their backs. They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. It's easy to romanticize that and say, oh, how cool, you know. Peter and them rejoicing. The agony of being beaten like that is indescribable. That they were able to leave rejoicing was totally supernatural. But they did. They rejoiced. <clears throat> and what did they do next after such intense persecution? Here's what they did. Here's how they responded. Did they run and hide? No. Acts 5.42 says, daily in the temple and in everybody's house, there's life groups, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ, which is the reason they've been beaten. They didn't care if they taught. They just said, don't teach in his name. So what did they go out and do? They went out and taught in his name. They doubled up their efforts instead of being intimidated. Let me tell you something, church. The days are coming where you and I are going to have to put on a spine. As a matter of fact, I think it's here. You're going to have to put on a spine. Don't you dare apologize for being a Christian, for loving Jesus, for his name, nothing like that. Think about it. Everything in the world is coming out of the closet. You might as well. <clears throat> Just be bold about it. Be open about it. Say it. Because they did. They did. Now, Peter next describes these kind of trials as a glorifying experience. He says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. You are blessed. for it. Why? Because right then, the Spirit of glory and of God is resting upon you. When they criticize you, make fun of you, mock you, ridicule you, reject you, distance themselves from you, whatever they do, the Spirit of glory and of God is resting on you in a way that it does not happen when you're not being persecuted. It's like he eases up to you and says, I'm right here. I'm right here. On their part, he's blasphemed. Why? Because they're blaspheming him and they're persecuting you, his child. But on your part, he's being glorified when you're being persecuted. He's being glorified. They are blaspheming him. Blessed is from the word meaning happy. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the merciful, so on and so forth, 
He was saying, happy and to be envied are those who. And then he names them there in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, the Be Happy Attitudes. That's what I call them, the Beatitudes, the Be Happy Attitudes. Blessed is from the word happy. Happy will you be when you're persecuted for the cause of Christ. Well, how can that be? Because the Spirit of glory and of God is resting upon you at that very moment. You are not suffering alone. If you've got a spouse that persecutes you, who's not saved, or is backslidden, and you want to go to church and they don't, and you go off and you go to church anyway, and they mock you, ridicule you, criticize you, make it hard on you, or co-workers or family or strangers. He said at that very moment, you're not suffering alone. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, calling him the Comforter. John 14, some of my favorite passages out of John. He said, if you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Comforter to be with you forever, the Spirit who tells the truth, the Spirit of truth. Comforter is the Greek word parakletos. Parakletos. I got it there spelled out so you can pronounce it in your notes. Parakletos. And it means somebody summoned to your side, called to your aid, one who pleads another's cause in front of a judge, a pleader, a counsel for defense, a legal assistant, an advocate. I've I've said it so often here on Wednesday nights and, and all the time. I can't imagine being in this world without the Holy Spirit. I thank God for the Holy Spirit. May we not grieve Him. Thank God for the Holy Spirit because the minute somebody says, Ah, you, you fool, you idiot, you dummy, believe in that Jesus stuff. I was watching an atheist on TV today. What a fool he was. Seriously. He said, it's a fact that most people in churches know this is all a scam. And I said, really? It's, it's a fact. And you polled everybody in all the churches, did you? This is an empirical fact on, on your part. How do you know this? Did, did God tell you? <laughs> and he said, this is a big scam. Everybody knows it's a scam. And they put up billboards now, the new billboard, that you know it's a scam. And here he is being interviewed by, by a uh, news host. And he says, uh, he says, what I mean by that is that most of the people that are in churches know that it's a scam. They're only there because of family or social pressure. And I thought, what a fool. And he was just mocking every believer in the country. Well, the person that was interviewing him happened to be a Christian on a secular news station and called him a loon. And I said, amen. No. I, I have no, the, the, the latest surge of atheists don't bother me at all. I'm kind of glad for them because it forces the issue and makes us talk, makes us dig into the Word and come up with an answer, which we need to have. You can't just say anymore, Jesus loves you, this I know, hallelujah, get saved or go to hell. You got to answer them. And so thank God they're coming out like this. And all these billboards, doesn't bother me a bit. Let's, let's meet. Let's talk about it. My God will stand scrutiny. My faith will stand 
the strongest scrutiny. I'm not afraid of it at all. Not at all. I welcome it. So, but when people like that make fun of you, here comes the Holy Spirit right to your side. And Jesus said, you don't even have to think ahead of time what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give you what to say in that very hour. He's our legal assistant. He's our advocate. He's our pleader. He's called by God to our side. He's by your side right now. Unless you've got unconfessed sin. And then you better confess it and get it out and get him back by your side. A helper, an aider, an assistant, spoken of the Holy Spirit who was destined to take the place of Jesus Christ with the apostles to lead them to a deeper knowledge of the gospel truth. Where did your Bible come from? Your Bible came from holy men of old who were moved on by this same Holy Spirit. And everything, the Bible says, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out of God by the Holy Spirit. That's why when you read it, the Spirit of God living inside of you rises up and says amen to what you're reading because He wrote what you're reading. And He's called to give us divine strength needed to enable all of us to undergo trials and persecutions on behalf of the kingdom of God. So when you suffer for the kingdom of God, you've got a spirit, the Holy Spirit, who's right there at your side, strengthening you, giving the truth to you, illuminating you, comforting you, and going to bat for you. You're a supernatural person. You have a supernatural God. Now next, Peter looks at specific, special, and spiritual explanations for the fact of suffering by God's people. Now look what he says now. But, now, now he's going to meddle a little bit. But, let none of you suffer. Talking about all this suffering for Jesus. What about this? Don't you dare suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a busybody in other people's matters. Now Peter honestly points out that Christians might, like anybody else, bring suffering on their own heads. That's the hardest suffering to go through. If you know you did it to yourself, can I have an amen? If you know you did it to yourself, that doubles your trouble, doesn't it? Now, he gives four examples, and here they are. Let's look at them real quick. There's the case of the murderer. Now, many of the apostles' early converts came from wild backgrounds, like some of you did. You know, people say, what church were you raised in? I was, I was raised in First Church of the Pagans. I wasn't raised in church. I came out of paganism. I was a pagan. What about you? Now, they came out of wild backgrounds. With many of them, something called the vendetta was practiced. This might have been the earliest mafia. Something called the, ven something, the vendetta. I can almost hear him. Hey. The vendetta was when someone inherited an obligation to assassinate somebody else who had killed a member of their clan. So they got a hit on them. And murder was a common way of settling differences and was commonplace in Peter's time. This whole idea of the vendetta. Somebody hurt somebody in your clan, you were anointed and appointed to go and take them out. Do the hit. Jesus was hung on a cross originally prepared for a murderer named Barabbas. And when they were given, the crowd was given the choice, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? 
They sinned, they blasphemed God and said, give us Barabbas the murderer and kill Jesus. Yet Peter says a Christian is not to suffer as a murderer. So turn to your neighbor and say, don't kill anybody. <laughs> I visited a turning point last week and he was having to tell his people not to kill anybody. Then there was the case of the thief. Let none of you suffer as a thief. Now the word used here, the Greek word is kleptes. Kleptes. And you recognize that, kleptomaniac, we get from that word. Kleptes. Uh, don't steal. It means one who steals by fraud or in secret. A Christian should never steal out of need or greed. You know why? You don't need to steal out of need or greed. You know why? The Lord's going to take care of your need. You don't ever need to steal. If, I, I've always believed this. If you'll steal a dime, you'll steal a dollar. If you'll steal a dollar, you'll steal a hundred. And this is the way thieves usually start out. They steal a piece of candy, steal a piece of gum, um, something as a little kid. And they get used to it, used to kind of just taking things. And they just grow into thiefdom, into kleptomania. Where they, they're stealing all the time. Cheat on taxes, cheat here, cheat there. You know, sometimes God will test you when nobody's looking. Because what you do when nobody's looking is who you are. Right? <clears throat> I'm going to give you a quick example. Not patting myself here. I'm just going to tell you what happened. I went and bought a paper. Kathy ran me by the 7-Eleven Sunday to get the paper. Because uh, I love crossword puzzles. And I get that crossword puzzle. I do one every day. Isn't that weird? But I do. Anyway, I went in there to buy the paper. And, and um, it was a Sunday paper, which now is $3. Yeah, you didn't know that, did you? The morning news is 3 bucks. It's, it's, it's robbery, but I get it anyway. It's a $3 crossword for me. So I, I went in there, and, and um, I decided to get two papers. I got the telegram, or what we call the startlegram, and I got the morning news, and I had them on top of each other and slid them up. She said, that'll be three dollars. And she had seen the two and thought they were one. Now, I know this is not hardly anything, but it, I really had six dollars worth of paper. That's three dollars. And I said, no, 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 no. I have two papers there. She looked at me like, wow. And I said, I'm an honest man. That's what I said. And she said, well, hallelujah. <laughs> so I said, here's my money. But, you know, whenever anything like that, believe me, I could have just said, oh, three bucks. Hey, glory to God. God blinded her eyes and gave me a free paper. <laughs> glory to God. He just blessed me. That's the way some people think. Hallelujah. No. So... I knew it's not between me and her. It's between me and him. And he knows, I know there's two. And so I'm not going to go, well, glory to God, just got a free paper, hallelujah, it's her fault. No, no, I paid. Now, I really believe if you can easily do something like that, you can easily steal something more. Keep clean records with the small stuff, the seemingly insignificant stuff. And you'll never have to worry about stealing. He said, don't do it. 
the Christian should never steal. And then he goes on. He addresses the evildoer. Well, what's an evildoer? The word is malefactor. It's translated malefactor. and simply means a doer of bad things, a criminal, somebody who's involved in activities that are against the law. Don't break the law. Don't do it. Amen, Pastor Jeff. Preach it good. I'm just getting so much. Amen. Finally, uh uh-oh, here he comes. Now look, he's been dealing with killers, thieves, and lawbreakers. Now why would he stick meddler in there after this? Let none of you suffer. Have any of you ever meddled and suffered for it? Meddling is simply this. Getting involved in other people's stuff that has nothing to do with you and ain't none of your business. Now that's the revised, wickwire slanted version. Getting involved in somebody else's stuff that isn't any of your business. The word for busybody occurs only here in the whole New Testament. Don't suffer as somebody who gets involved in other people's stuff when it's none of your business. It means an overseer is what the word means, malefactor or overseer or busybody. I'm sorry, busybody. In the things that are really the concern of somebody else. In other words, don't become involved in things that aren't any of your business. Uh, Wise King Solomon wrote this, interfering in someone else's argument is as foolish as yanking a dog's ears. (laughs) Anybody ever yanked a dog's ears? Oh, what a cute little dog. You grab those ears, you never do it again. I was out walking my dog yesterday. neighbor came out. and Oh, what a beautiful dog. Knelt down to to, to pet her, and she's new and didn't know who she was. She pulled back. Didn't bite her. Thank God. But what she did was she touched her ear. And I thought of this tonight. So, because you're going to get bit. It's going to turn around and bite you if you go meddling in other people's stuff. Say, when do I get involved? When you're invited. And even then, sometimes you ought to say, you know what? This isn't any of my business. (laughs) Now, next, Peter deals with righteous suffering. Enough of killers and thieves and malefactors and busybodies. Now he's going to deal with righteous suffering that comes from Christian activity. Yet if any one of you suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now, believers in Jesus were first called Christians. Notice he says, if any of you suffer as a Christian, that word Christian first was coined in Antioch in Acts eleven twenty six, 26. And the name had a measure of contempt attached to it. Oh, they're Christians. And it was beginning to do so, or it is beginning to do so again in our day. If you're a Christian, it's not what it used to be. Yet there was almost a touch of inspired genius in the name itself because it was a Greek word, Christianos. And it also embodied a Hebrew thought, the Christ or the Messiah or the Anointed One. At first it was a word tinged with scorn and gradually became a name of honor. In time, the believers came to see that it meant they were committed to a glorious person who was not only the promised Messiah of the Jews, but also the creator of the universe, God incarnate, one now seated on the throne of God in heaven. You couldn't be called anything greater than a Christian because it means you're walking with the Messiah, the anointed one, the creator, very God 
wrapped in flesh. It means you've made a very wise decision. You're following the anointed one. When Peter wrote this letter, the name was still used in scorn. The blood of the martyrs was flowing in rivers. Wave after wave of violent persecution swept over those who bore the title Christian. The ten successive onslaughts of persecution had only just begun when Peter wrote his first letter. He had no way of knowing that the war against Christians from the Caesars would continue for 300 years, three centuries. No doubt. Now this is really something to think about. The spirit of prophecy that rested on John as he wrote the Revelation pointed to these ten future waves of persecution, ten Caesars who shed Christian blood. When he addressed the church in Smyrna, here's what he wrote. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for ten days. Ten Caesars spilled their blood. And when he wrote this, Nero, number one, was the one on the scene. There were nine to go, ending with Diocletian. Then he says, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. And those people received this when they were being put on these stakes and burned alive. Peter next points out that suffering cleanses the church. Get this. Time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? The judgment Peter speaks of was the outbreak of persecution against the church. Can I say this? God allowed it. God could have stopped it. Well, Pastor Jeff, I don't understand why God would allow that. Well, Peter likely well remembered how he himself had brought such awesome disciplinary action against Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that? <laughs> well, what happened? They, they lied about giving some money to the church. Now, well, we're going to sell this land and give all the proceeds to the church, and nobody asked them to do it. They just came along and said they were going to do it. We got some land, we're going to sell it and give all the proceeds to the church. But then they lied, and they kept some back. And Peter, oh, this is so sobering. Here's Peter restored, filled with the Holy Spirit, preacher at Pentecost, walking in such an anointing that the sick were healed by his shadow. They come in and said, yeah, we gave, we gave everything we said we were going to. And Peter said, why have you lied to the Holy Ghost? Bloop! Down went Ananias. Dead. Well, wifey Sapphira knows none of this. She comes in later. Hey, where's Ananias? Tell me, says Peter, did you give everything you said? Yeah. The same men that carried out your husband's body are carrying yours out. Bloom. Now, if I'm looking to become a member of that church, <laughs> you've just convinced me to look down the street because they're dropping dead in there for lying. Wouldn't be many people in church, would there, if we were all dropping dead from lying? But they did. Now, here's the interesting thing. As a result, great fear, yeah, I would imagine, came upon the church. But rather than stifle its growth, it says believers were added the more to the Lord. 
multitudes of both men and women. It just grew after that happened. Amazing. When Peter wrote his letter, apostasy was finding a comfortable place in a compliant church. If they did not deal with it, persecution would do the job of cleansing her. Let me tell you something, church. Suffering will do what nothing else can do. And that's why you've got to see the hand of God and the grace of God working in your suffering. I'm not saying that he gave you the suffering. I'm not saying he made you sick or did anything like that. But what I am telling you is that he uses suffering. And, and, and it will accomplish what very little else will. You'll read like you never did before. You'll pray like you never did before. You'll seek God like you weren't before. When you're suffering, the church was already beginning to believe lies apostasy was taking place false doctrine was infiltrating the church and some of them were not dealing with it so god allowed persecution to come in and i would reckon the western church needs some cleansing so will he allow some suffering yes he will and if you suffer for the cause of christ don't you dare walk away and pick up your marbles and go home, get out of church and quit praying and say, why is God doing this to me? You've got to see the grace of God at work in no matter what you're going through. Peter says, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner be? Here's the fact. God does indeed judge his own people. And that ought to sound an alarm for the wicked. God will not hesitate to judge them. Now here's the thing about judgment, and I've studied this and I've looked at this for so long. Sometimes judgment overtakes them in this life. But sometimes uh, God's judgment has a poetic character, by the way, if you look at it. It has an irony to it. As when Haman was hanged on the very gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. He who rolls a stone, it will return upon him. You'll see that some people are judged in a very ironic way by God. What they try to do to somebody else is done to them. What they intended for another is brought on them. Read about it in Esther, an incredible story. Or as when Herod, who massacred the babies of Bethlehem, died in torment. His body riddled with a foul and fearful disease. And the Bible says his body was filled with worms. Just telling you what it says. He died a terrible death this killer of the babies. Often wicked people seem to get away with it. You ever bothered by that? Did ever bother you? How are they doing that, getting away with that? God won't let me get down the street doing something wrong. And they live their lives doing something wrong. All right? David was troubled by this fact of life when he was endlessly hunted by Saul. He said, what's the deal? This guy is making my life miserable and you don't do anything to him. Now, if God could have answered, here's what he would have said. You future king, you David, these ten years I'm letting this man harass you and I'm not taking him out. It's because you've got rough edges that need to come off, future king. I'm using the suffering. I'm not making him crazy, and making, but I'm using what's happening to you. We've got to get that view, folks. 
But the wicked do not escape. Their judgment is simply postponed. All of the wicked, says the Bible, will stand trial at the great white throne of God, guaranteed. Finally, Peter encourages total trust in the face of suffering. We may not always understand. And listen carefully to me. You're not going to understand all the suffering you experience. You're not going to be able to account for why some people do what they do to you. You're not going to be able to understand some things that take place in your life. You don't have to. We walk by faith and not by sight. There are some seasons in your life, church, where you're going to suffer, maybe emotionally, physically, relationally. You're going to suffer some. If you didn't suffer, there's some ways you'd never grow. I'm telling you the truth. There's some ways you'd never grow. If I'd never had a problem, I'd never know that God could solve them. I'd never know what faith in His Word could do. You've got to learn to say, okay, I don't get it, I don't understand why this is lasting so long, why they seem to be getting away with this, why this, why that. But, let those who suffer according to the will of God, Peter says, commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Here's what you got to know. Your God is good. And anything that He allows into your life, you got to trust Him. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. I know what I'm thinking about you, sweetheart. Thoughts of good. Thoughts of what? Say it with me. Good. And not of evil. That's what I'm thinking about you. I don't think one evil thought about you. I don't have one evil intention towards you. I'm thinking good. To give you a future and to give you a hope. you got to know, according to Peter, God is good. And what does it say? He's faithful. It may look like you got the bad end of the deal, and you know what? You might have. And you know what? You probably did. Joseph got the bad end of the deal. Thrown in prison, lied about, betrayed, slandered, spent years in a prison for something he didn't do. But what did he say at the end? What you intended for evil, my God meant it for good. So you got to know he's good and you got to know he's faithful and when you don't understand his hand trust his heart we got to fall back on this truth in the midst of suffering God is too loving to be unkind he's too wise to make any mistakes and too powerful to be thwarted in his purposes for you he will perfect that which concerns you say it with me when you don't understand God's hand, the thing to do when sorrow is like a sea billows roll is trust God anyway and keep doing all the good that you can while you can, as long as you can. Next time, rules for shepherds, rules for sheep. Can we stand up?
Can you imagine being one of those folks tied to the stake? Or can you imagine being one of those folks in the middle of that Colosseum? What about believing in the goodness of God then? As the animals are coming towards you, you're going, this is what walking with Jesus did for me? They trusted him. And they went to glory. Father, help us to grow up in terms of our reaction and response to you in suffering. Help us, Lord, to remember that you are good and you are faithful. And you're going to work it together for your purposes. Some of you in here are suffering right now. And I want you to lift your hands to him. I want you to say, Lord, I receive this word. You're suffering emotionally. You're suffering physically. You're suffering financially. Lord, I trust you to work it out. And let me not suffer for wrong. If I'm suffering for my faith, help me to rejoice and share in your glory. In Jesus' name. God Sing it with me now, everybody. So good.